Hello and welcome to this month's edition of In on the Act with me, Jess Harold. Today I'm joined by Jonathan Gaunt KC, barrister at Falcon Chambers, for a little bit of a different discussion, focused not on a single Act of Parliament, but to address the important work of the Law Commission in the legislative process, its role in recommending reform when it comes to property-related matters, and specifically what has happened to two of the papers produced by the Commission on easements and rights to light. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, good morning, Jess, and thank you very much for having me. I think it might be helpful if I started off by saying something about the Law Commission and how it's set up and what it is and what it does. I think uh, it would. I mean, the Law Commission has obviously been it's been in the headlines a bit recently in the industry following the announcement that it's going to review the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954. Uh, but uh, some of our listeners may be sort of uh, not over familiar with the, the mechanisms of, of, of the Commission and how it works. So, yeah, if you could just outline that for us, I think that would be very valuable. Okay, certainly. Well, the idea for this, of course, was caused by the announcement in March that the Commission were going to have a look at the Landlord and Tenants Act 1954. Um, And it will be interesting to see how that goes ahead and how Mm. it fits into the the pattern of their work. Um, Well, the Law Commission is, of course, as everybody probably knows, a statutory body. It was created by the Law Commission Act 1965, and its objects are to keep the law under review and recommend reform where it's needed. And it does that uh, to some extent at any rate by uh, repealing uh, out-of-date statutes and periodically uh, dealing with um, statutory law reform. It's charged with trying to keep the law fair, modern, simple and effective, which um, may be thought um, quite optimistic. Um, (laughs) There's a chairman and four commissioners, all of whom are appointed by the Lord Chancellor, Uh, The present chairman is Nicholas Green, Lord Justice uh, Green, um, and he's going to be succeeded in December by uh, Mr Justice Peter Fraser. Uh, Each of the other four commissioners oversees a team um, and they're separated into the following four teams. There's a commercial and common law team, a criminal law team, uh, a property, family and trust law team, and a public law and law in Wales team and each of those has its own commissioner. Uh, The property commissioner, with which your uh, listeners will be interested, uh, is Professor Nick Hopkins. The commission is required by statute to report annually to the Lord Chancellor, and indeed you can find online, uh, if you Google um, Law Commission annual report, you Mm -hmm. can find uh, all their annual reports going right back and their most recent one. And that explains a lot about the Law Commission to anybody who wants to find out. (laughs) And the Lord Chancellor in turn is required to report to Parliament and explain uh, why the recommendations of the Law Commission have not been implemented and uh, to um, report on the progress of their implementation. Uh, The way it works is this. Um, Every four or five years, it formulates a programme Um, It does this by inviting ideas from a very wide constituency, pretty much everybody, as to what areas of the law need examination and reform. Uh, It's currently coming to an end of its 13th programme, which was started in 2017, and it has finished consulting on what should go into its 14th programme, although as far as I'm aware, it hasn't yet finalised that programme. Not to my knowledge. Now, as well as suggestions from the wider public, it's also frequently requested by government 
to examine a, a hot topic, but it is totally independent of government and its views and recommendations are not influenced by the government and they're not binding on the government. In fact, if you go back to 1965, when the Law Commission started, they have produced, I think, 249 reports at the last count, of which 155 have been implemented in whole or part. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good record, 64%. Mm -hmm. Relatively few have been rejected outright, I think only 31. And 19 were at the last count awaiting implementation, having been accepted in principle. But uh, although their recommendations are taken very seriously by government, the government is not bound to uh, uh, implement them. So I think that the 1954 Act is one is an example of one of those projects that where the Law Commission has been requested to look at it by the government. So let's sort of talk about one, what happens once the Law Commission has accepted a project like like that. Uh, what does happen next in, in its work and, and uh, what is the kind of timescale that leads to its eventual output? Yes. OK, well, they, they do publish a sort of timeline of the stages uh, that a project goes through. Um, when they've decided to embark on a project, the first thing they do is they carry out an informal consultation uh, to get an idea of what are seen as the problem areas in the, that area of the law. Um, and that's what they're doing at the moment, apropos of the Landlord and Tenants Act 1954. It's, they're at the pre-consultation stage. They're saying to interested parties, um, what do you think is wrong with the present situation? What are the problems? Um, what do you think we ought to address? So that's stage one, pre-consultation. Um, and they began doing that in March 2023, as far as the Landlord and Tenants Act 1954 is concerned. The next stage is uh, they produce a project plan as a result of their pre-consultation as to what they're going to examine. And they then work up and publish a consultation paper. Uh, and the consultation paper um, records what are thought to be the problems. Uh, it sets out the current state of the law. And um, those papers are very valuable papers. They're very highly worked. They're very thoroughly researched. And um, they contain um, statements of the law in areas in which there isn't necessarily a textbook. Mm -hmm. And as well as setting out the problems in the law, uh, they, a consultation paper sets out the ideas and options for reform, as, as the Commission see it. And then they invite, uh, they go out to consultation with the consultation paper and they invite comment on their ideas. Now, to give you a very good example of that, uh, back in 2020, they produced four reports on leasehold infrangement, mm -hmm. uh, property management, leasehold property management, uh, and commonhold. And uh, the one on the price for infrangement was a very large paper, um, and uh, it contained a whole lot of different options for reform, and it invited comments upon them, uh, which they duly received. So uh, that's stage two, the, the consultation paper. That goes out for consultation to a wide number of interested bodies and practitioners, and the responses are then analysed, and the Commission decides on its recommendations in the light of those responses. And it then publishes a report. Uh, the consultation papers are typically green. The command <laughs> papers, which are the reports, are typically red. Um, so you can tell which is which. And the 
report contains the recommendations of the Commission and often a draft bill, uh, which is drafted by parliamentary draftsmen who've been seconded to the Commission. Uh, the Commission is staffed uh, by about 29 employed lawyers uh, and they're assisted by approximately the same number of research assistants. Uh, the research assistants are young people uh, drawn from the universities, postgraduates, um, very bright, handpicked. Um, I, sh I should say that several members of my chambers did that at the beginning of their careers before they started practice at the bar. And uh, the research assistants help the uh, employed lawyers. Um, and the work of the Law Commission is of a very high standard. I mean, the papers they produce are excellent statements of the law, the existing problems with the law, uh, and they come up with very sound recommendations on the whole list of what is to be done. Um, the government isn't bound to, to accept them, as I say. It does reject some of them. Um, it rejects some of them for very good reasons when it considers them fully. But um, the work is of a very high standard. We were talking about the various stages. The report is then published and it's then considered by the government. The report uh, is then mulled over by the government. Uh, I mentioned the various reports in 2020 into leasehold enfranchisement and mm. common health and so on. They are still being considered by the government, although Michael Gove, of course, from time to time, makes fierce noises about what he's going to do to <laughs> leasehold tenure. Um, we don't know what he's going to do to leasehold tenure yet. Uh, but um, the uh, whole question of diesel tenure, enfranchisement and com common hold is very much up in the air. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I, I imagine you, you mentioned the, I think you said a 64% um, success rate over the Law Commission's history. And I imagine, you know, a lot of that uh, in terms of the 36 is is down to the political situation at the time and, and, and the time in the political cycle that those reports are made and, and often you have changes of government and that must influence I imagine the way in which uh, the Law Commission's proposals are are sort of met to and, and, and reacted to. Well absolutely I mean when we come to easements we can see this very process happening um, and um, uh, of course, um, since the various reports on easements, which I'll come to in a moment, um, we've had Brexit, we've had mm. COVID, we've had changes of government, uh, we've had um, changes of prime minister. I mean, we've had all sorts of things, which just have meant that there hasn't been any progress in that regard. Um, OK, so let's 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 turn to that report then, the, the, the easements report. I'm, of course, particularly interested in the law of easements because I'm a co-editor with Sir Paul Morgan of the practitioner's textbook going on easements. Mm -hmm. um, in 2008, the commission published their consultation paper number 186, which was titled Easements, Covenants and Profits Are Prawn. That was followed after extensive consultation in June 2011 by a report with a draft bill, which was in two parts. Part one related to covenants, which it called land obligations, and that was designed to make the benefit and burden of both positive and negative covenants, which related to land, run with the land. Of course, at the moment, the benefit and burden of positive, positive covenants doesn't run with the land. I think probably the main concern of the Commission at that stage was that um, it was very difficult to have freehold schemes because um, the covenants wouldn't run, positive covenants wouldn't run. Um, well, that was part one. Part two of the bill dealt with easements. 
what did the Commission see as the problems in the law of easements? And what did they propose? Well, basically, I think they, they thought the law of easements was a mess. <laughs> and it is. And I'm just going to quote <laughs> you from the preface to Gale on Easements. This is the uh, 19th edition, September 2012. In 1974, an American writer wrote of the law of easements. The law in this area is an unspeakable quagmire. <laughs> the intrepid soul who ventures into this formidable wilderness never emerges unscarred. On looking back, they see the trail they thought they broke, obscured with foul-smelling waters and noxious weeds. And that is a fairly good description of the law. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, Lord Newberger, when he was master of the rolls, uh, said this. He said, the law pursuant to which easements can be acquired through long use has been bedeviled with artificial doctrines developed by judges under over many centuries and the law has been complicated rather than assisted by the notoriously ill-drafted prescription act 1832 whose survival on the statute book for over 175 years provides some support for the adage that only the good die young that was in a word or in a few words why um, it was necessary to have a look at the law of easements what did they propose well I will summarise. I won't deal with all the technical mm. details. Um, one of the first things they did was they proposed the repeal of the existing law of prescription, as we've heard, even the master of the rules didn't like it, um, and its replacement by the following simple rule, which is simply qualifying use of land for a continuous period of 20 years has effect to create an easement in relation to that use. Full stop. That's the test. Um, qualifying use simply meant use of a kind um, relating to which a right could be granted as an easement um, and uh, a, um, a use which took place without force, stealth or permission and was not unlawful. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's the law of prescription, as they suggest. Uh, obviously, there are some uh, bells and whistles, but um, that's essentially what they propose. And uh, that would certainly uh, simplify the law of prescription a great deal. Secondly, they proposed a single test for the implied grant or reservation of an easement. Now, at the moment, there are three, I think, separate ways you can get an implied easement, the main one being the, the, the rule in Wilden Burroughs. And that, of course, says that if you want to reserve an easement as opposed to grant an easement, you've got to do it expressly. It is almost impossible to get a, an implied uh, easement by way of implied reservation. Uh, the Commission suggested that, um, that all those tests, Wilden and Burroughs and everything else, should be replaced by a rule that any right that is necessary for the reasonable use of the land granted or retained should be implied. And they set out a list of matters to which it would be relevant for the court to have regard. I must say, I'm not terribly convinced by that. I don't think the law on implication is very difficult. And I think that the proposal that uh, the test should be any right that is necessary, what's meant by necessary, for the reasonable use of the land granted, what's reasonable. I mean, I, I, I think the proposal possibly has more problems than the present. Anyway, that's what they suggested. Thirdly, they proposed, and this I do absolutely agree with, that Section 62 of the Law of Property Act should not have effect to create an easement um, from a license. Um, I mean, everybody will be aware of the situation where um, uh, if um, 
a tenant acquires the freehold of his land and happens to, at the same time to uh, have been permitted to park his car in a car parking space nearby, all of a sudden his precarious license is converted into a perpetual easement. That's always seemed to me to have been a complete um, misconstruction of Section 62, but it's clearly the law um, and um, it really shouldn't be. So mm. they say, they'll do away with that. Um, fourthly, they uh, proposed abolishing what is usually called the ouster principle. Um, and the ouster principle means that the grant of a right that prevents the owner making any reasonable use of the land can't be an easement. And that had given rise, uh, given rise to difficulties in connection with parking. Because if you had a right to park in a particular space, then the owner of the land couldn't do very much with it because you could turn up and park there whenever you liked. And um, the question was, did that give rise to an easement or not? Well, actually, the law has moved on. And it is fairly clear from um, uh, the decided cases that there really isn't a problem about parking. And um, I'm not sure that abolishing the ASTA principle is really required anymore. Fifthly, and this is quite an, an interesting proposal, one of the difficulties with easements is you can't get rid of them. You can leave them unused for years and years and years. I mean, actually, in one case, I think 185 years, and they're still there, despite the fact that you haven't made any use of them. There may not be any trace on the ground of their existence, mm -hmm. um, but they're still there. Um, and what the Law Commission suggested was introducing a rebuttable presumption of intention to abandon if an easement hadn't been exercised for a continuous period of 20 years. So the, the abandonment period would match the prescription period. I mean, yeah. that's a very sensible idea. And then they proposed, and this I think is really important, that the uh, lands chamber of the upper tribunals should have jurisdiction to discharge or modify easements on the same grounds as applied to restrictive covenants under Section 84 of the Law of Property Act. Now, uh, that is really valuable because <clears throat> that is a, a, an ability to get rid of an easement that is standing in the way of proper development uh, but can't otherwise be got rid of. Now in their uh, 2011 paper they suggested largely because they were worried about um, uh, Protocol 1 of Article 1 of the Human Rights Act that that should only be true in respect of easements created after the Act. Of course we haven't got the Act yet. Um, <laughs> Later on, as we'll see, they decided that they, their worries were unnecessary on that account. And they suggested, uh, their, their current suggestion is that the uh, jurisdiction to modify or discharge would apply to all easements whenever granted. Well, now, um, that's basically what they suggested, and they were dealing mm -hmm. with a number of um, difficulties. And I guess your next question is going to be, what's happened? Yes, indeed. Yeah, it, what what has happened to those proposals in the uh, twelve years since? Well, the answer is not much. <laughs> um, in May 2016, the government announced that it intended to bring forward proposals in a law of property bill to respond to those recommendations. So they weren't mm. rejecting them. They weren't saying they didn't like them. They were saying they'd bring forward legislation. And in a housing white paper in February 2017, they said they intended to simplify the current restrictive covenant regime and would publish a bill for consultation, mm -hmm. which not happened. 
the whole question of covenants, particularly positive covenants and easements, has got tangled up in Mr. Gove's leasehold and commonhold reform program, mm -hmm. because there are a lot of elements of that which involve covenants and easements. And I, I'm told by uh, Professor Hopkins that uh, the Law Commission has been uh, helping the government with those um, questions. Um, and so still has an input and that's going on. So I think all is not yet lost. Mm. Uh, uh, when we know uh, what is going to happen about common hold and leasehold mm. and management and so on, there may well be um, uh, elements in that legislation which do adopt the Law Commission's recommendations in their uh, 2011 report. So that's the fate of the 2011 report. Its recommendations have not been rejected and the Commission's annual report actually lists them as approved. <laughs> Although, to what extent that is uh, wishful thinking, I'm not sure. Um, but implementation is still awaiting. And the other project that we, we wanted to ask you about today was the Rights of Light project, uh, on yeah. which I believe the, the Commission um, uh, reported in 2014. And that was a, a quite um, eagerly anticipated uh, project, uh, Rights of Light, obviously um, very uh, important uh, in the development industry. So what was the background to, to that project and, and what were the Law Commission's recommendations there? Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, when the 2011 report came out, um, I, I and Paul Morgan wrote in the next edition of Gale that we were disappointed mm. because it hadn't dealt with Rights of Light. <laughs> And it deliberately didn't deal with rights and light because it thought that was a topic which deserved separate consideration. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the 2011 report uh, said in terms that there was scope for a further review of the law of rights of light, that it was an important area and that it had significant financial implications. And indeed it does, huge implications for the development industry. In 2013, the Law Commission published another consultation paper on rights to light. Uh, they'd been asked to do that by the Department for Communities and Local Government, and they'd been asked to do it following the rather devastating decision at first instance, which is generally known as Heaney, which was reported in the Estates Gazette in, and is in 2010-3 EGLR 15. Mm -hmm. uh, in that case, the owner of the dominant land had carefully avoided engaging with the developer, uh, the developer of neighbouring land, and carefully hidden such uh, fairly minimal interactions as there had been behind the without prejudice screen. So the court wasn't entitled to know about them. The fact that there had been negotiations about money uh, were concealed from the court, but perfectly properly. Um, and the judge found that the development would substantially interfere uh, with the light to the neighboring building. And he granted an injunction requiring the top two floors, which had in fact already been let, uh, to be demolished. <laughs> um, now that decision was appealed to the Court of Appeal, but it was settled at the door of the court. Uh, no doubt the dominant owner, uh, by virtue of the judge's decision at first instance, had a very powerful bargaining position at that point. Now, what that case illustrated was that the position had been reached where rights of light were a major constraint on development particularly in cities. Um, but there was another problem, and that was the recent tendency 
which appeared in several cases of the courts uh, when considering whether to grant an injunction or to grant damages in lieu uh, to apply rather literally uh, Lord Justice A.L. Smith's so-called good working rule, which all law students learn about, the good working rule in Shelfer's case. And uh, the way in which the courts had approached it was that that was a sort of tick box exercise. So that if you failed to satisfy any of the four criteria in the good working rule, uh, that would mean the grant of an injunction. However disproportionate the effect of the injunction would be, as indeed in Heaney's case, mm. where uh, the um, uh, damage to the developer was um, very great, and you might think that the benefit to the, um, the, the, the claimant was relatively small. However, the Law Commission suggested that it should no longer be possible to acquire rights of light by prescription, which is a very radical idea, and they suggested a notice procedure be adopted for developments. Um, and uh, I'll come back to that, uh, and that the jurisdiction to discharge or modify as it related to rights of light should after all apply to all existing rights mm -hmm. instead of many for the future. Um, and they went out to consultation on that. Uh, well, after a period for consultation, the commission published their final report on rights of light in December, 2014. Uh, they didn't after all recommend abolishing prescription but they did advise the simplification of the rules as to prescription as, as set out in their earlier report. Um, and they also proposed a simplified procedure to replace the Rights of Light Act 1959. Now, uh, you'll recall that the Rights of Light Act 1959 deals with what are generally known as LONs, um, and they provide a procedure uh, for uh, a notional obstruction to a right of light to stop a right of light being acquired by prescription. And it's quite a cumbersome procedure and it's been quite widely criticized. Uh, the uh, Law Commission's 2014 report proposed that a court be prohibited from granting an injunction to restrain the infringement of a right of light if doing so would be a disproportionate means of enforcing the dominant owner's right to light taking into account all the circumstances, including eight matters which were specified in the, in the proposed bill. That would be quite a major change. Uh, there was also a suggestion that the government uh, consider reforming the law as to damages in lieu and perhaps cap it either at a percentage of profit share or as a multiplier of diminution in value. Um, the problem is this, that when the court awards damages in lieu, it sometimes assesses the damages on what's called the negotiating basis. And uh, that can involve calculating the profit, which would be earned by the developer if he didn't have to cut back his development to avoid the interference with the light. And that can be a very large sum of money indeed. And the suggestion is that the government should consider whether they should in some way limit that. Um, now, that's just an invitation to consider it. They don't actually suggest how that should be done. The other thing they suggested was um, a procedure involving a notice of proposed obstruction. Now, this is a clever idea. Um, if a landowner expects to obstruct the light, the light of a neighbor's property, he should be able to 
uh, serve a notice of his proposed obstruction, which they call an NPO, and require that the neighbour seek an injunction in respect of the obstruction within eight months or be debarred from obtaining an injunction. So the idea is uh, the neighbour has to put up or shut up. Um, the eight months gives plenty of time for negotiation, but what it does stop is um, this negotiation behind the without prejudice screen going on for years and years and years while the developer is losing bags of money because he's paying um, uh, interest on his costs and so on um, and his land values and it would address the problem which are, which was illustrated by Heaney very well. I mentioned earlier the proposal about abandonment that there should be a presumption of intention to abandon after 20 years. In the case of rights of light, the commission suggests that that should be five years. Mm. So that if a right of light had been blocked up and hadn't been used for five years, the right would be lost. And then the final and most important suggestion was that the jurisdiction of the lands tribunal of the upper tribunal under section 84, as it applied to all easements, not just rights of light, uh, should be retrospective and it should apply to easements whenever granted. So that's uh, what they suggested. And once more, I expect you're going to ask me what happened. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I suspect the answer might be slightly similar. <laughs> well, I'm afraid it's even worse, really. The answer to what it, what's become of those recommendations is absolutely nothing. Mm. Um, in his July 2018 report to Parliament, uh, the Lord Chancellor said that the government had been carefully considering the report and there were no immediate plans to implement its recommendations. And I quote, as a result of other legislative priorities, but the position would be kept under review. End of quote. Mm -hmm. Well, another five years has passed and nothing has happened. And we don't know whether anything is going to happen. Yep. I mean, no shortage of other legislative priorities in that five year period, obviously. Um, but do you uh, do you think that, that that there's been a missed opportunity here in respect of these two projects to let them sort of uh, linger this long without without any movement? Well, I, I think there has. I think. Uh, Almost everybody would agree that prescription needs sorting out and simplifying, mm. and it's quite easy to do. It's very difficult to see any downside to the um, proposals that the commissions put forward, and probably hasn't caused an enormous amount of harm, but it, it's a tidying up of the law that is very well overdue since 1832. As to implication, as I indicated earlier, I'm not sure that the law as to implication of easements needs to be codified um, in the way that suggested. I don't think it's very difficult. And um, I'm also not completely uh, convinced by the notion of a prohibition on granting an injunction to restrain interference with light uh, unless various criteria are met. I think uh, the case of Coventry and Lawrence in the Supreme Court has, has really solved that problem. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, disapproved the uh, tendency of the courts which had been emerging to apply the, um, the Shelfer test rather slavishly, as they said, uh, and said the real question was one of proportionateness. Uh, is the grant of an injunction going to have 
a disproportionate effect. Um, so that's the law already. Mm. Um, the Law Commission knew about Lawrence, they refer to it in their report, but um, they seem to think that the courts were in danger of backsliding, as they put it. <laughs> and, um, well, I, I'm not sure about that. I think mm -hmm. the courts are um, perfectly um, able to decide when that remedy would be disproportionate. Uh, and it's a very much a matter of fact in each case. Um, and I'm not sure that, as it were, changing the legal burden uh, as to injunctions is necessary. But uh, if you want to help developers, I suppose it is. The curtailment of Section 62, as I've said before, would be a very good thing. That really ought to go through. It is ridiculously difficult for an easement to be extinguished. And so the presumption as to intention to abandon after non-use for 20 years, five years in the case of light, would be helpful. And the introduction of the Section 84 jurisdiction to modify or discharge easements um, exists in many other jurisdictions throughout the world. Uh, it ought to exist here. We ought to have it. It's badly needed. Um, and uh, I think that is a really important uh, reform which ought to go through and which has just languished. Those two reforms, of course, would strengthen the negotiating position of developers and they'd go a long way to removing the ability of dominant owners to frustrate development and ransom the developer. I don't think the abolition of the ouster principle is terribly important. I think the simplification of the 1959 Act long procedure um, is desirable, but not crucial. Mm. Um, so I think there are elements that um, would be very helpful. And the proposed notice of proposed obstruction procedure the NPO is a very good idea. Um, it gives plenty of time to negotiate, but it would require the dominant owner to put up or shut up. In short, I think it would be a relatively simple matter for the government to sift through the Law Commission's proposals in the two reports, select what they think matters, and pass the necessary legislation, which has been drafted for them in mm. the bills in the reports. The present law of easements does impose serious constraints on the redevelopment of our cities constraints which have nothing to do with proper planning uh, and which can be exploited uh, to achieve windfall gains and really there's not much to be said for that mm. um, so there are respects in which the law needs to be sorted out and simplified well thank you so much uh, for joining me today jonathan to discuss uh, the the work of the law commission and these particular two reports in detail it, it remains to be seen whether their recommendations on leasehold and common hold and their forthcoming project on the 1954 Act will enjoy greater or, or faster success than uh, their projects in respect of easements and right to light. But uh, I'm sure uh, we will return to those discussions uh, in, in this podcast series uh, as as, uh, as the months and years pass by. So um, thank you again. Hope you've enjoyed uh, discussing uh, the Law Commission and its reports with me. Well, thank you very much, Jess. Um, I hope I haven't gone on too long. Uh, absolutely not. And to those of you at home, you have been listening to In on the Act from EG. Uh, for more information on each of these papers, uh, please see the EG Radius archive at egi.co.uk.